And it is that very foretaste of deliverance, that unwavering hope that is ours in the resurrected Christ, that will be ours when he comes, that we are seeing now in our sermon text this morning. And you can find that on page 8 of your worship folder as we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew through this sermon series in Matthew's Gospel where we see him as the king, the king that has come and now the king that is coming once again. So our reading starts in verse 36 of Matthew 24 and we read these words as Jesus continues to teach his disciples saying, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But now, but know this, That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant and his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So ends the reading of God's holy words. There is a bit of dialogue in the book that I lifted my sermon title from. You probably recognize it, The Return of the King from J.R. Tolkien's great Lord of the Rings series, probably one of the finest pieces, if not the finest piece of uh, literature and fiction in the English language. After the great battle for the Ring of Power is over, Sam Wise, or Sam Gamgee, Frodo's friend, lays recovering in the home of a friend from his ordeal that he suffered with Frodo on Mount Doom. And as he awakens, he sees the wizard Gandalf. And he says this, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then the wizard laughed 
And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. And then as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased. And the laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from his bed. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What a question. And it is the longing of many a heart as they case upon the landscape of, of suffering and sorrow and sin that is this world in which we currently live, even as Christians waiting for the coming of our King once again. Sometimes the shadows seem so deep, so dark, the day so long, and that no light will ever shine again. But just as Jesus has promised, the night does end. It will end. God, who is eternal, faithful, and unchanging, has promised that everything sad will become untrue, for indeed it is already becoming untrue in Christ who redeems us to himself. Peter, in one of his first sermons, that he preaches after Jesus has ascended, the resurrected Lord had ascended and the Spirit had come. He preached that Jesus had ascended for a time until the time for the restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. A time of restoring when the King comes again. And we know that that time is true, that it is coming, because Christ our King has already come once before. You see, His advent is rooted in a historical reality. Jesus was born. He has confirmed and fulfilled the promises of God in His covenant towards His people. The mediator had come. And then He died just as had been predicted. And He rose just as had been predicted. And he ascended, and he will come again, just as he has promised. Our hope is a sure and living hope because our king is a sure and living king. And our text this morning is a continuation of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where he's predicted the destruction of the temple and the things that would happen leading up to that point. And of course, it does happen just as he promised. And he also touches on what will happen when he comes, what will be this period of time, this interadventual between the Advent period of time. He's been answering the question that the disciples asked him Back at the beginning of Matthew 34, what will be, when will these things take place, and what will be the sign of the coming of the age? And he explained what will be when these things take place, these things being the destruction of the temple. Of course, that's already happened now in our lifetime. And now he's getting into what 
will be the sign of the coming of the age. What will it be before the king returns? And the first thing we see here is that Christ's coming is unpredictable. In other words, there's, there's no way to possibly know when exactly the king will return. We just know that it's promised. It's going to happen, but it's impossible to predict when that will be. Jesus says in verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in the heavens, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, angels are are supernatural beings created by God to carry out His will in the world. They are His messengers. They dwell in His very presence. They are familiar with God in a way that you and I are not familiar with Him at this moment. But even the angels of heaven don't have the knowledge of when the King will return. And yet, as astounding as the ignorance of the angels is on the matter of Jesus' return, Jesus says that he, as the Son, does not know the day or the hour of his coming. The Son has a special and close relationship with his Father, being the second person of the Trinity God himself, as Jesus says in John 20, 30, I and my Father am one. Now, because of that, you wonder, well, how is that possible? If Christ is God and knows all things, how does he not know the time of his coming? Well, Jesus does know all things. He is God. But in his humanity, in his human nature, which he is speaking of here, he voluntarily limits himself, which is part of the mystery of his two natures, both God and man, being united in one person. You see, Jesus, as God, is present everywhere, or he is omnipresent. But Jesus, as a man, walked from place to place by foot, on the back of an animal. And Jesus, as a man, is not on earth right now. Where is he? He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. But he is also spiritually, as God, present with us in this place, in this moment, through the proclamation of his word, through the administration of his sacraments. That's why we can worship him as he is here. Jesus in his divinity had no need of rest. He was omnipotent, all-powerful. But in his humanity, we find he grows weary. He he needs sleep. He needs to eat to replenish himself. And Jesus in his divine nature knows all things. He is omniscient. But in his humanity, he does not know when he will return to the world. You see, the amazing truth that he is Emmanuel, the God-man, God with us. So if the angels in heaven then, God's own personal, supernatural, heavenly servants that do his bidding, if they do not know when the king will come, and if Jesus the king himself in his humanity did not demand to know that knowledge but left it to the Father, then who are people, who are humans to predict that they know when he will return? 
And yet, despite that very clear statement that Christ makes here in Matthew 24:36, we know that many people, many from the very first century of the church to the present day, have made bold claims of when Christ will return. In fact, Paul, in his letter, his uh, first letter to Timothy, or second letter to Timothy, rather, speaks of false teachers. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus who were teaching that Jesus had already returned and the resurrection of the dead had already happened. And this is why Paul is alive. And they're saying, oh yeah, he already came back. But he didn't. He hadn't. Church fathers Irenaeus and Hippolytus, they predicted that Christ will return in 500 AD. Of course, Jesus didn't. Pope Sylvester II convinced many medieval Christians that Christ would come on January 1st, 1,000. We are now well over 1,000 years from that date, and Christ has not returned. Pope Innocent III claimed Jesus would come on 1284 A.D. Uh, William Miller, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists, claimed that Jesus would return on the 22nd of October, 1844, of course, it did not happen to the disappointment of his followers. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, predicted Christ would return in 1891. And Charles Taze Russell, who started the group that would become known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Watchtower Society, claimed Christ would return in 1910, and then when that didn't happen, he changed it to 1914. Of course, it didn't happen then either. And finally, a more recent example, Harold Camping. You probably remember him. Uh, he claimed Jesus would return exactly on May 21, 2011. It wasn't that long ago. He bought 6,000 billboards and put them across the country. I'm sure you've probably seen one, or some of us have, claiming that Christ would return. The Bible guarantees it May 21, 2011. And it didn't happen. And so what did he did, do? Well, he didn't really apologize. He just said, I guess I was off a little bit. And then he said it would happen on October 21st. And of course, it didn't happen then either. And there are many more that can be named who have tried to predict the coming of the king. And the common theme with all of them is they are flat out wrong. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said, nobody, not even myself in my humanity, knows the hour the Son of Man will come. And yet, even in addition to people of faith, both Christians and cultists alike, making predictions on the date of Christ's return, His final judgment, and the end of the world, we find that there is a fascination, even in the secular, unbelieving world, with the end of all things that preoccupies the secular mind. I mean, that is why there is much fear and anxiety and trouble over things uh, like climate change and disease and geopolitical troubles and economic crises. Now, those are all real things. It's okay to be concerned about those. We ought to want to be good stewards of creation. If, if we hear geopolitical struggles that ought to, ought to trouble us, we ought to pray for the world. We ought to consider public health situations. But we don't need to fear that the end is upon us. These things have always been, and they continue to be, and will continue to be, till Christ returns. 
But when these things do create fear and they control a person, it then begins to command their thoughts and their devotion, their desires. It affects the way they live their lives and they end up worshiping another god. You see, we create idols from our fears. And many people will craft an alternate liturgy of worship for their lives around their fears, especially when it comes to the fear of the unknown. And here's the thing, though. While we do not know the exact day and hour of Jesus' coming, we do know what it's going to be like because he tells us right here. He gives us a key phrase in verse 37. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus is talking about those days before the great flood that is recorded in Genesis 6 through 8. The flood, of course, was a judgment of God upon the earth at that time because of the exceeding wickedness of humanity in rebelling against God. And what were people doing before the flood came? Were they doomsday prepping? No, they were not. What were they doing? He tells us, verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were just going on with normal life. They were enjoying food and drink, celebrating weddings. They had funerals. They built houses and cities and cultures. All of those, by the way, are good things that God has given us. They celebrated heroes, though. They sought greatness. They sought to make a name for themselves. In other words, the world in Noah's day before that judgment wasn't any different than the world in which we live now. In fact, we also see that in Noah's day that people, at least the majority, seemed to live with no thought of God whatsoever. There was no worship. They ignored His Word. They ignored the revelation He had given them both in the natural world and through the proclamation of preachers like Noah. They broke His law that they knew at that time and they added sin upon sin. Again, it was what we see today. Normal life going on with our ordinary business and great sin. And then suddenly, without warning, the flood came and swept everything away and only Noah and those who were with him in the ark were saved. In verses 40 through 41, Jesus zooms in a little closer, coming off that idea of the days of Noah to show what people are doing in the days before he returns as king. And what we see is Nothing out of the ordinary, normal life. People are working in fields, farming, doing their regular jobs. Others are working in a mill, grinding grain, going about their lives. And then suddenly, some are taken and some are left. Now, Jesus here, he's 
not actually teaching a secret rapture of the church at all. He's simply trying to make a point about the, the unexpected suddenness of his coming. In fact, those who are taken that we see here in this text are not being taken to be with the Lord because the context is that of judgment. They are the ones swept away in judgment just as those were, that were swept away with the flood unexpectedly. So people are living their lives going about their normal lives, many of them without a thought, just like those in the days of Noah, about their sinfulness, about the fact that they break God's law. In fact, they look for new ways to try to break it all the time. And then suddenly, the king comes. And with his coming comes their judgments. So Christ's coming is unpredictable. There's no sign in the sky no special geopolitical event happening in the world. No one world government that forms. Christ just comes, just like the flood. It just happens. Now, that isn't to say that the people in Noah's day were without warning of the coming judgment. In fact, God is very long-suffering and patient and merciful. And so... He gives them time to repent, to come back to Him. Noah is called in the Scriptures a preacher of righteousness. He warned the people that they needed to embrace God's promised salvation that at that time is symbolized in this ark if they are to be saved. But people waited. They ignored it. They went about their lives and they rejected the deliverance that God had provided them. They did not want to know God. And then it was too late. The flood came. Which leads us to the second thing we see here about Christ the King's return. Not only is it unpredictable, but it's also unpopular. There's a side to this unawareness that comes from a heart of apathy or indifference. In Noah's day, the people on earth, as we have just seen, they were warned that the judgment was coming. In fact, they could see it happening before them. God's gracious provision of salvation was being built up right before them in the ark that Noah was building. But just as they ignored God's natural revelation, they ignored that special revelation as well. And so it is with Christ. He has warned us, as we're seeing here even in Matthew 24, that He, the Son of Man, is coming at a time we do not know in power and glory to complete the work of redemption which He has begun for His people and to bring judgment upon those who continue to reject Him. And yet His warnings, like those of Noah's, they're dismissed, they're ignored, they're not very popular. In the ark of Christ's salvation, his church is being built up in this world just as Noah's ark as a testimony of his faithful word. That he will build his church. That hell's gates will not prevail against it. And that is happening all over the world. I mean, look at the history of the church. Because nation and people and heretic 
Many powers have waged against it, and yet it still continues to grow and to grow. Because it is Christ's church, it is His ark, and as it is being built, despite the attacks against it, what do many in the world do? Do they come and say, no, God is a faithful God. Look what He is doing for His people. No, instead, they reject His salvation. They are indifferent. They are apathetic. And sadly, that happens even within the church itself, within the visible church. You see, indifference leads to unfaithfulness. Jesus launches into a parable in verses 45 through 51, and he tells the story of these two servants. One is faithful and wise, and the other one is harsh and evil, a wicked servant. And we'll come back to that faithful servant in a moment, but for, let us now let us zoom in on the wicked servant. Jesus spares us many details, but he simply explains that the master of this estate, of this household, had gone away for a time, and he will return unexpectedly. And he leaves his servants to care for the household, to, to keep it, to maintain it, to keep it functioning. Time passes, and the wicked servant, for a little while, goes about his work, which he had been assigned, but he grows impatient. The days seem longer and longer. He is tired, and so he says in his heart, my master is delayed. In fact, he may never come. And it is from that apathy, that indifference, that he is led then to abandon his work, the task that he had been given, and to pursue his own desires in the most violent of manners. Jesus says that he begins in verse 49 to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and he drinks with drunkards. He lashes out at those other servants of the household, abusing them, injuring them for his own gain, his own sake. There's no fear of the master. He may never return. Why not live life as he wanted to live it? And so he does, taking advantage of others and taking advantage of God's good gifts as well as he says that he eats and drinks with drunkards. Food and drink are God's good gifts of common grace to help sustain us and also to, to bring us joy in this world as broken as it is by sin. But like all of His good gifts, they are abused by sinful minds and hearts that desire to indulge themselves without care or concern. And so responsibility is abandoned and results in things like gluttony and drunkenness and addiction. That is what this servant does. By giving in to the passions of his heart, the wicked servant stopped doing what he was supposed to be doing in the master's absence, caring for the household. He has abandoned his title as a servant of the master. He has become unfaithful. Indifference, the master's delay, doesn't really matter, leads to unfaithfulness. And here's where Jesus' parable really hits home for us as Christians. You see, the master in the story is Christ. That much is obvious. It's very clear. 
And just as Jesus has ascended to heaven for a time, so the master in the story has gone away on a long journey. And just as the master in the story will return unexpectedly, so Jesus will return unexpectedly. So the question then is, who is this master's household? What is this household that these servants are part of? that they're supposed to keep functioning. Well, it's the church. It's Christ's people. This isn't the world in general that Jesus is talking about. In fact, we could understand that if, if that's what it was. I mean, people's hearts by nature are hardened to the things of God unless the grace of God intervenes into their lives. But this is the Master's household. This is the people that call themselves Christ's part of his kingdom. It is the visible church. And what we find is is that the servants in the master's household are abusing other people and God's gifts. That means that this time in which we find ourselves between Jesus' first coming, his first advent, and his second coming, his second advent, It means that that church, that visible church at least, is a mixed congregation. There are faithful servants and there are unfaithful ones. There are tares and there is wheat. And it is those wicked servants, or those that are like the wicked servants, that have become indifferent to the reality that the king will return. It is not a popular idea for many even within the church, which then leads to that unfaithfulness. You see, unfaithfulness to Christ the King, it doesn't happen overnight. And when we speak of unfaithfulness, I do not mean the constant struggle we all have with our sins. We we live with the reality that we are, are... We're sinners and we still have a sin nature and yet we have a new heart as well and so we struggle. We we have our battles and sometimes we fall and we stumble and we confess our sins and we're forgiven. In fact, that's being faithful. Recognizing our sin when we have sinned and coming again in, in humble repentance again and again, that's being faithful. But the unfaithfulness says the king is delayed. He's probably not coming I will go do what I want. I will not repent. Unfaithfulness is an utter willingness to simply abandon the calling and the duties that Christ has given to the church that the Master has called us to. This is the person for whom worship is just something that's rather flippant. It's something he will do when he feels like it. He does not need to unite with God's people to commune with God in their presence with Him. It is their choice rather than something God has commanded. This is also the person who is willing to rewrite God's Word and law in order to avoid the responsibility for their own sinful actions and choices. 
And so we ask the question, how does that happen even in the church? How does it come to pass that many people who claim Christ's name are now indifferent to his coming to the point that they neglect the very gospel itself? Well, it happened because they grew indifferent to the reality of the king's return. And that's why this indifference is so dangerous. It leads to unfaithfulness, which leads to the judgment that the king brings. How does the story of the wicked servant end? It doesn't end on a good light. We wish it did otherwise, but it does not. The master of that servant will come on a day, verse 50, when he does not expect him, and at that hour he, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about judgment. Unfaithfulness leads to the judgment. It's a graphic description. It's, it's meant to, to convey a sense of horror, of, of falling into the hands of a holy God. Now, the language isn't necessarily literal. Uh, again, this is prophetic discourse. He's not saying you will literally be cut up into pieces. But it's meant to emphasize the severity of the judgment and its certainty. And the picture of being cut in two is only used elsewhere in the Scriptures to describe the ceremonial sacrifice of animals. Animals were divided in the ceremonial law as a picture of a co- the covenant of grace that God cut for His people. And in the ancient covenant ceremonies, uh, if one party failed to keep the obligations of a covenant, it meant that they were to be divided just like the animals. So again, we see here with this, this cutting the idea of a covenant failure, of an unfaithfulness, of, of keeping to the faith, to the promise. You see, the condition of God's covenant grace is very simple. It's simply faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Unfaithfulness, then, is is simply not believing those promises that He has given and fulfilled in Christ, including the promise of His return. And so, when the Master's servants grow indifferent to His return, they grow indifferent to the Master Himself. And when that happens, it's easy to do what my heart wants instead of what the Master has called me to do. It's easy to become a master of my own self, my own God. See, it's the old sin of the garden. I will be like the Most High. I will know good and evil like the Most High. Christ's return is unpopular because ultimately people don't want Christ. And some, sadly, even within the visible church itself. Oh, they want a Christ. They want the idea of a Christ. But it isn't Christ the Lord as revealed in His Word. It's a Christ of their own making. It isn't the Christ who has said that He is coming again. And so when the true Christ, the true King returns, 
They will not find the joy of His presence. They will feel the harsh reality of His holy judgment, His holy justice. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. Because the third and final thing in closing that we see regarding Christ's coming is yes, it's unpredictable. Yes, it's unpopular for many. But for those who look to it in faith, it is an unparalleled joy. So we turn our attention then back to this faithful and wise servant. Like the wicked servant, this servant was also entrusted with the operation of the household in the master's absence. This servant, though, he keeps on doing what was asked of him. The master's delay continues. Day goes on by day, and he continues to do the things assigned to him. He doesn't question what the master has called him to do. He simply does his duty. He doesn't grow apathetic or indifferent. Instead, he grows in hope that with each passing day, the master's approach grows closer. And he wants to be ready. He wants to be that faithful servant. This servant was following Jesus' instructions that he lays out for us in verses 42 and 44, where he says to his disciples, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what day or in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at a day, an hour, when you do not expect. Stay awake and be ready. Don't fall asleep in apathy and indifference, but be alert and watch. Keep an eye to the horizon, for the King is coming. Be ready. Because you don't know what hour will be the day of his coming. Jesus uses the illustration of a a thief breaking into a home to describe his coming and that if a house owner knew when a thief was coming, he would have been prepared. And this theme of Jesus' second advent coming like a thief, it, we see that come up in other parts of Scripture, like a, like a thief in the night coming without warning. So be ready, be prepared. Idea, again, we see that idea of suddenness and unexpectedness, which requires a prepared readiness. But how do we do that? How do you prepare yourself? How do you become ready for this unexpected event? I mean, you don't know when it's going to happen. Well, it's thankfully quite simple by God's grace. You see, we prepare ourselves by being like the good servant in the parable. He was faithful and he was wise. In other words, he knew that the master was coming even though he didn't know when. And he knew what the master wanted him to do and he simply did it. We know right now that Christ is coming. He's told us that. We can be wise about that. And we also know 
what he has called us to do. And what has he called us to do? Trust him. Believe in him. Follow him. Take up his yoke and learn from him for he is gentle and lowly in heart and gives rest to our souls. Rest in his righteousness, not our own. Seek first his kingdom, not our righteousness. Seek him for who he truly is, the Son of Man, the King of heaven and earth, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Hear his words of truth and his words of peace. That's what he has given us to do. Simply be his disciples by faith alone. He's been preaching this to us through his entire ministry as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. We know what we have been given to do to be faithful and wise servants. It's the Gospel. We know what life is like as citizens of the kingdom here and now, that we are called to love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves through Christ alone. And so being a faithful and a wise servant isn't a matter of trying to do enough good things to hopefully earn the king's favor and not suffer his judgment. Because if we have trusted him, that burden's already been lifted. There is no condemnation in Christ. Nor is being faithful and wise as a servant withdrawing ourselves from the the kingdom of this world to, to live in some sort of Christianized fortress, a bubble away from all the chaos and corruption of the world. Being a faithful and wise servant is simply taking Jesus at his word and living as a disciple of his through faith and through the grace that he gives us alone. In fact, God in His words even ordained a way for us to continually be faithful and wise on a regular basis. He's given us one day in seven to worship Him on the Lord's day to be with His people. I know it's not flashy. It's not very romantic. It seems kind of plain, simple, ordinary. But it is through that that God keeps you faithful. So that when the king returns, you will hear these words. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. That blessing, that happiness, that joy that he's speaking of there, that is the eternal blessing of his covenant promises to save you. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's only reward, the reward of life, the reward of His grace. So Jesus said to that faithful servant that He was given charge over all His master's possessions. In Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17, that we are joint heirs of Christ's inheritance if we would suffer with Him, if we would continue faithfully to trust Him to trust the gospel, to do those things to which he has called us to do. That is the unapparelled joy of his coming. We are Christ's heirs. And so we look for the return of the king. So Christian, be alert, be prepared, because everything that is sad in this world 
is about to become untrue. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that through it we have revealed to us the promise that our King is alive, that we can know him now, that we are part of his kingdom already, that we can enjoy these blessings that you have promised us in Christ, and that we can expect greater blessing a fulfillment, a consummation of those blessings when our King returns. And Father, we long as your people for that day. So help us to be faithful by continuing to believe your gospel. Continually put us in remembrance that we are yours because you have called us, not because of anything we have done, but by your grace alone. And may we be strengthened and edified through the simple things of your word proclaimed and your sacraments in which we can partake until that day Christ our King returns. But until that day, we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Make everything sad become untrue for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.